Hi, everyone, and, and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast. We are in episode 93 of the series tonight. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back 50 years in time, and we report on all the hockey news from that time exactly as it was written by some of the greatest sports writers in sports history. This week, we are looking at August 2nd to August 8th, 1971. DraftKings Sportsbook is not only my favorite sportsbook, but also America's top-rated sportsbook. Speaking of America, their top athletes are over in Tokyo competing for gold medals, and DraftKings has a medal-worthy offer just for our listeners. Listen to this. You place any pre-event wager of $1 to be eligible to cash $100 in free credits on the DraftKings site if America wins any medal during the event. That's 100 to 1 odds on an American athlete to stand on the podium and receive gold, silver, or bronze during this next week. 100 to 1 odds on an offer like this doesn't come around very often, so sign up for DraftKings Sportsbook right now to get in on all the action. My listeners, they just love using DraftKings Sportsbook. It's easy to navigate. It has plenty of instructions for new bettors. And it's nearly limitless in the ways on which to get in on all the actions. Lots of our listeners, a lot of my friends have been loving the action on on DraftKings. And I know that you will too. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app right now and use the promo code TH. PN that's for the Hockey Podcast Network when you sign up to turn a dollar into a hundred dollars in free credits if America wins a medal. That's code THPN to turn one dollar into one hundred dollars in free credits for a limited time only at the DraftKings Sportsbook. You must be 21 or older in New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. This is for new customers for DraftKings only. Restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for all the details. In addition to DraftKings, don't forget about our other sponsors. Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, provides us with the bulk of our uh, areas of research, and we couldn't do what we do here without their support. And of course, the Breakwall Brewing Company in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, now fully open for lunch, dinner, uh, out on the patio. I'd love to join any of our listeners if you're ever in the Niagara region for a beer and a burger at the Break. Well, we had to really dig this week for the hockey news. As I'd mentioned earlier, podcasts, uh, August could, especially early August, was kind of a wasteland for hockey uh, news. But we did find some stuff this week. Uh, What I always loved about August is that I kind of felt like we were getting into the home stretch of summer. It was only a little over a month before the hockey training camps were going to start. There was all kinds of speculation uh, amongst fans ourselves or even in some of the uh, writers about who was going to uh, get invited to the various camps. I was now at an age where friends of mine were actually getting invited to NHL and minor pro training camps. And it was fun to see uh, the guys you know and what they were doing and 
how they were going to make out. Uh, there was lots of stories going around. The hockey equipment was getting back on the store shelves, and that was always something that told me, yep, it's not far away. So let's see what kind of news was reaching hockey fans this week 50 years ago. Well, things started off on Monday with news from Chicago. A robust defenseman of the Chicago Blackhawks, Jerry Korab, was to undergo minor surgery on Monday in Chicago. The injury that he was getting looked at was torn cartilage on the outer part of his right knee, and it was described as not terribly serious by Dr. Theodore Fox, uh, the man who would perform the operation. Dr. Fox said that the injury stems from uh, something that happened to him during mid-season of last year. It's at a, uh, really just a harmless point on the knee right now, but it could be aggravated by extreme bending. And so the team felt that it was best to get this taken care of right away. Bob Verde of the Chicago Tribune informed us that after the surgery, Jerry Korab will go on to crutches for a short period of time, but that he won't have to have a cast on the knee. So things look good. Jerry should be ready for training camp without any problem, and he's expected to play a very big role on the Chicago Blue Line this season. We have a bit of news out of the Vancouver Canucks this week as well. Uh, the Canucks have loaned forward Bob Cook, who played for the American Hockey League Rochester Americans, to the Western Hockey League Seattle Totems for the 1971-72 season. Well, at least he's a minor league player, so he's going to start out in Seattle, but these guys never know where they're going to end up during the season. Bob Cook is one of six Vancouver players who will find their way to the West Coast City for the 71-72 season. The Canucks have agreed with the Totems to supply them with six players this year, and there's a bit of method to their madness. The main uh, farm team for the Canucks is, of course, the American Hockey League, Rochester Americans. But what uh, Bud Poyle's thinking is he's going to have six guys just an hour or two down the road in Seattle, and they'll be able to serve as emergency call-ups if the Canucks run into a rash of injuries and can't get somebody all the way across the North American continent from Rochester to suit up for him. So not a bad bit of strategy by Bud Poyle in this regard. And speaking of Bud Poyle, he informed uh, Vancouver writers this week that he has already sent out contracts to about 28 players. He said about 28 players. He didn't even know how many. And these 28 players were also invited to attend the Canucks training camp, which opens on September 13th in Calgary, Alberta. Now, this list includes three players uh, who are reported to strongly considering retirement. We know Ray Cullen is one of them. But the list does not include the team's three top amateur draft choices, all taken from the Quebec Junior League in the June draft. But Bud Poyle adds that those three players could receive invitations just as soon as they put their names on the dotted line of a National Hockey League contract. Now, Poyle was recently in Montreal to speak to representatives of these three juniors, and he reported that it looked like the Canucks were in 
for some very tough negotiations with these three youngsters. Stay tuned and we'll see how that would turn out. One of those three veterans who did get an offer is Andy Bathgate, a future Hall of Famer, one of the great ones uh, around the National Hockey League since the 1950s. But Andy has told friends he's planning on going to Switzerland and coaching hockey in that country this year and that he was kind of tired of the National Hockey League grind every season and he was looking forward to coaching, but we'll see how that turns out. Bud Poyle also told reporters, this is an interesting bit of an agreement, he said that the Los Angeles Kings had agreed to lend at least two players to the Canucks farm team in Rochester for this season. Poyle said that part of our deal to help supply players to Seattle of the Western League is that the Kings is also putting players in Seattle and that they're going to loan a couple players to Rochester so the Canuck players that are going to be in Seattle won't leave the Rochester team very short. Poyle said that the two guys he thinks might end up in Rochester are fellows like Doug Robinson and Real Lemieux, both veterans of the National Hockey League as well. Detroit Red Wings were busy signing players this week. On uh, Tuesday, they announced that defenseman Serge Lajeunesse, who completed his first pro season last year, and left winger Guy Chiron had signed their 1971-72 contracts. On Thursday, they followed that up by signing Gordon Red Berenson, the center that they acquired from the St. Louis Blues during last season in that big trade that sent Gary Unger to St. Louis, and he has signed up for the following season as well. And the Blues uh, got a couple of veterans under contract as well this week. They were veteran forwards Frank St. Marseille and Gary Sabrin. Uh, St. Marseille and Sabrin have been with the team since it came into the league, and that gives the Blues seven players under contract so far. And Frank St. Marseille is a really interesting story. Very interesting guy. He played many years in the International League. Never got a sniff at the NHL. And Scotty Bowman, or one of his scouts, saw Frank a few, and someone suggested that the Blues take a look at him. They invited Frank to their first training camp and signed him to a pro contract. And a little personal note about that, Frank's son, uh, is an OPP officer, and I actually had the pleasure of teaching him when I was an instructor at the Ontario Police College, and we had some uh, good reminiscences about it, his dad and his playing days in the NHL. The Boston Bruins have signed three players for their Braves farm team to be playing in Boston as well the, this year. The three are left winger Ron Beam, who has uh, had some NHL time with the uh, Oakland Seals, right winger Elaine Boom Boom Karan, another fellow who played for the Seals, and defenseman Ray Fortin, who's been around with Montreal and St. Louis, and he had played in Hershey before. All three will report to the Bruins training camp, which of course is being held in London, Ontario. Now the Bruins also obtained the rights, the professional rights, to Bob Grip, who is a star at Boston University and uh, he's got another year of college left that he's going to uh, take part in. But he's one that the Bruins are hoping will develop into a big league player at some point in his career. 
Here's a retirement that we really expected was going to take place during this offseason. It was a while, but uh, we got the word this week that Mark Rayom, a 37-year-old defenseman, injured seriously on the way to join the Rochester Americans for a game last January, announced that he is definitely retiring from hockey. Mark says that hockey was a big part of my life for a good many years, and I've gotten a really good life out of pro sports but that part is now over and I'm not going to play hockey again that's for sure. Marc Rayom at this point in history is the only man to have played for all three Canadian National Hockey League teams. Yes he played a bit for the Montreal Canadiens he played for the Canucks in their first season and he is the man that the Toronto Maple Leafs in 1960, traded to the Detroit Red Wings for Red Kelly. Good news for Buffalo hockey fans. This was really good news when this came out uh, in August. The uh, concrete truck drivers have cemented a new labor contract with the ready mix companies that are supplying the materials that are being used for the expansion of Memorial Auditorium in downtown Buffalo and work has resumed at the site. Now the odd is, is expected to be ready for the opening of the National Hockey League season in October despite at this point with the work being a month behind schedule and I'll tell you even Clarence Campbell was talking about contingency plans if the Sabres would not be able to play their games at the odd for the first month of the season but thankfully that didn't happen. The Minnesota North Stars number one offensive line of Jude Druin between Bill Goldsworthy and Danny Grant are negotiating hockey contracts which combined would make the trio a $100,000 line. The three players who scored 84 of the North Stars 179 goals last year, incidentally the lowest in the entire NHL, are negotiating independently with the North Stars general manager Red Blair. Goldsworthy said, I don't want to oversell myself. Bill has scored 70 goals over the last two seasons, but he says, I don't want to sell myself short either. Right now, Ren and I aren't even close on a deal. We're more than 5000 but less than $10,000 apart. 50 years later, $5,000 wasn't even a figure that anybody would uh, even consider worthwhile discussing. Johnny McClellan. This is a nice story. Johnny McClellan is one of the uh, the best guys in the NHL. One of the nice guys. Yet there isn't anybody who really disliked Johnny McClellan. Well, this week he signed a two-year contract to continue as coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs. No salary terms, of course, were disclosed by general manager Jim Gregory. He's been burned by disclosing salary terms before, so he's now being steadfast and not letting anybody know what he's playing as players or as coach. But the Toronto hockey writers have sort of gotten uh, to the bottom of it. I don't know where they got their sources, we're not told. But uh, several writers uh, stated that they figure McClellan's going to get a $7,000 raise over the sum of 18500 he made last season. So that means Johnny's going to make about twenty five grand this year. 
And that's still less than the average NHL salary these days. And speaking of nice guys, the Pittsburgh Penguins signed their first player for the coming season. And he is 37-year-old left-winger Val Fontaine. He's a veteran of 13 years in the NHL. Another one of the good guys around the league. And he's back for another season with the Penguins. The name of Brian Shaw is very familiar to hockey fans in the Niagara region. Uh, Shaw is a former manager coach of the St. Catharines Blackhawks in the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series. Well, he's moved west, and this season, Brian Shaw is going to coach the Edmonton Oil Kings of the Western Canada Hockey League. That team, of course, won the league championship last season. Alan Fotheringham is a syndicated Canadian newspaper columnist. And he's not a sports writer, although he covers, he writes about sports because he loves sports. But he does cover the entire spectrum of Canadian news. A lot of political uh, commentary, a lot of financial commentary. And he uh, reported this week that September 15th next month, could be a crucial date in the ongoing uh, saga of the Vancouver Canucks ownership and their financial difficulties. Fotheringham writes that D-Day for the troubled Metacor boys is September 15th. That's when they have to produce $142,000 in interest on the money that they borrowed from the Capazzi family. The rate of interest is a killing 18%. It's like a damn credit card in uh, 2021. That comes to $54,000 a month. And Metacor and the Capazis have indicated that the first monthly payment has been made. However, what they haven't disclosed is that the payment on July 15th was for a token sum of only $10,000. And that was their agreement. The August 15th payment can also be deferred to the $10,000 level. But on September 15th, the balance of $88,000 plus September's $54,000 has to be delivered or Metacor defaults on the loan. And $54,000 is due and payable every month thereafter. A deal to get Metacor and Tom Scallon out of the glue before mid-September is expected. One discussion point is an intermediary trying to put something together between the Capazis and the sons of John David Eaton and the sons of John Bassett, the Toronto Telegram publisher, who's a heavy with, of course, the Maple Leafs and the Toronto Argonauts. Biggest spur for complete Canadian ownership is that Minnesota's Metacor, besides owning the hockey club, was siphoning off $180,000 a year for their own use. Tom Scallon was taking a salary of $40,000. Lyman Walters, the vice president, was taking twenty grand, And Metacor was charging the Canucks a management fee of $10,000 a month. This week, the Calgary Herald editorial page uh, carried an opinion piece 
not attributed to any particular individual. There's no name associated with it, but it's under the paper's banner, a very valid take on Canada's Olympic participation. The uh, editorial says it's most disturbing to learn that Hockey Canada's board of directors will soon consider an invitation to send an amateur hockey team to the 1971 Winter Olympics being held in Sapporo, Japan, which is next February. The best thing Canadian hockey officialdom ever did was to pull out bag and baggage from international hockey competition in early 1970 until international hockey tournaments, including the Olympics, become honest. Canada must adhere to its hands-off position. So-called amateur hockey abroad is flagrantly dishonest. The best foreign teams are selected from ranks of players who are maintained by the state as career, which is to say professional hockey performers. In other words, they are the best players that those countries can possibly produce. But Canada is not permitted to send its best players to take part in the annual World Hockey Tournaments and to the Quadrennial Olympic Tournaments. The Europeans called their teams amateurs and refused to allow them to play against Canadian, quote, professionals, that is to say, full-time career hockey players who get paid over-the-counter instead of under it. For some years, Canada suffered an embarrassment of seeing its amateur teams composed of part-time college students and immature youngsters being drubbed by the Europeans who thereupon claimed title to the world hockey leadership. It was a great relief to me as well when national integrity was restored by refusing to allow this humiliating situation to continue. But there are a number of Canadians who are agitating for a return of Canadian participation in international hockey on the old basis of foreign countries dictating dishonest terms to our country, which invented hockey and which still happens to produce the very best players on the planet. But it takes a lot of money, pardon the use of such a disgraceful word, to send hockey teams overseas. If they are not our best, and not only money is wasted, but our national pride suffers quite a needless affront. The word amateurism no longer has a rightful place in any kind of big-time sports. The quicker it's banished from all, the better. Since when was dishonesty appropriately paraded as a virtue? Hockey helmets were the topic of discussion uh, this summer week, and of all places, the Canadian financial uh, tabloid, the Financial Post. And here's what they had to say, and of course, the Financial Post, they're recognizing if everyone's got to wear a helmet, that's going to be big business. The Post writes that many materials used now to make helmets look protective, but in fact, they have no shock-absorbing qualities at all. This is a statement by the Canadian Standards Association spokesperson, and that should send chills down the spines of parents with sons 
who love to play hockey, and 50 years later, we include daughters in that. But it's good news that the Canadian Standards Association expects to produce the first draft of standards for hockey helmet manufacturers in time for the upcoming hockey season. The need for a standard was brought home forcefully some months ago when a 16-year-old Toronto schoolboy was killed when he was struck by a puck on the left side of his head below the temple. This tragedy prompted CSA technicians to re-examine methods of testing head protection. The old method of dropping a weight from varying heights on the top of a dummy is completely inadequate, and that's being acknowledged. It cannot measure force on other parts of the head, such as on the temple where the Toronto teenager was struck. This is why CSA engineers are investigating more sophisticated test equipment. They have studied methods at the University of Michigan where a research program on athletic helmets is now underway. Upgrading of materials to absorb shock will be the first step towards greater safety on the hockey rink. The next should be to insist that all players, professional and amateur, either wear the helmets or stay on the bench. Kevin Walsh, the fine hockey writer for the Boston Globe, traveled to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, where Phil Esposito is teaching at a hockey school. And while he's there, he talked to Lou Nanny of the Minnesota North Stars uh, about the contract situation that Phil, Phil still hasn't signed. And he asked Lou Nanny what he thought of the situation. And Nanny said, just what can they pay a guy like Phil Esposito? Can you imagine? He scored 76 goals last year. What's the guy worth? Nanny says, well, I'll tell you something. There are many guys in the NHL who play 8 or 10 exhibition games, scrimmage and practice almost every day, play the regular 78-game season, and then play some additional games in the playoffs, and they'll never score 76 goals. Nanny says that about 25% of the players could even amount to shooting practice that Esposito goes to every day, and they still couldn't come up anywhere near Phil's goal total. Esposito happens to be in the room when this little interview is taking place and of course he's very uh, smiling when Nanny is giving him all the compliments about what an amazing goal scorer is but Phil's smile turned to a frown when the conversation turned to what he should be making because negotiations apparently are not going well with the Bruins and Phil is holding out for a five-year contract. One can't forget that Phil is one of two superstars that play for the Bruins. The other, of course, being the amazing Bobby Orr. Neither has signed their contract for next year. Orr's contract is said to have been already agreed upon, but there are a variety of reasons on why it hasn't been announced yet. And Phil quite unabashedly says he's not close to signing with the Bruins. Adding uh, to all the, uh, I guess, controversy over this were statements made by NHL President Clarence Campbell declaring that it was his opinion that the Bruins 
would not be able to afford to pay both or and Esposito would probably have to sell one off. So after the non-news uh, that he acquired from Esposito, basically nothing's new. We're still talking. We're not close. Kevin journeyed down to uh, southern Ontario to the shores of Lake Kuchiching near Aurelia. And that's where the Orr Walton Sports Camp is uh, staged every summer. And Bobby Orr was there uh well-rested, tanned, smiling, and he says, uh, we still have a few details to work out, but it doesn't look like it's going to be anything too, uh, too major to keep us from signing. But interestingly, Walsh reports that Bobby didn't sound too convincing. Now, here's where things differ a little bit uh, between Orr and Esposito. Bobby Orr, at this point in his life, is 23 years old. Phil Esposito is 29. Both are seeking five-year contracts, but Esposito is looking for security that will take him through to the age of 34 or 35. Bobby is signing the big deal, but he will probably have other contracts that he will be able to sign over the next five years. He wouldn't be signing a career-ending contract or winding-down contract. Phil wants to make the big score, too. But being six years older than Bobby, that's a tough negotiating position to be in for Espo. Phil uh, did tell Walsh, she says, I haven't talked to the Bruins about my contract since the end of June. So here the problem is, they don't think I'm worth what I think I'm worth. And that's the holdup. So discussions will continue. But remember, we're talking about 1971, 50 years ago. There is absolutely no doubt that both Phil Esposito and Bobby Orr will sign their contracts and will play for the Bruins this season. And the Bruins need them both if they figure at this time when they've got two amazing superstars and an excellent cast of supporting players, they think they've got a chance at the Stanley Cup in 1972. Okay, the uh, play guy we told you last week would arbitrate salary disputes between National Hockey League players and their teams is a fellow by the name of Ed Houston. He's out of Ottawa, Ontario, and uh, we want, the name kind of came out of nowhere for many of us. Well, Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star decided that hockey fans need to know who this guy is, and so he introduces us to Ed Houston. Edward James Houston was a logical choice for the thankless task of arbitrating salary disputes between the avaricious owners, that's the player's viewpoint, and the ungrateful peasants, which of course the owner's outlook of hockey. Look at it this way. Houston was one of two, two crew members in seven who survived when their RCAF bomber was shot down by the Nazis in World War II. He spent 15 months as a prisoner of war in East Prussia. Since then, he has made hundreds of appearances in court as an attorney in Ottawa. It isn't likely he's going to be intimidated by the mouthpieces of pompous club owners or by player agents. Edward James never played big league shinny himself, but he isn't exactly a stranger to the hockey rink. At one time, he was a trainer for his hometown club at Arn Pryor, Ontario. And that was when 
A buck was something you didn't leave under your plate. Not in Armprior, anyway. Then, he played junior hockey for Armprior and then Shoemaker. You know those towns, the little bit north in Ontario. After the war, he was the president of the Eastern Professional Hockey League, which became the All-American Central Professional Hockey League because it faced starvation in Canada. Some of the teams there were in Kingston and Sault Ste. Marie. While he was the uh, boss of the Eastern League, he lowered the boom on Billy Ray, now coach of the Chicago Blackhawks. Billy had a run-in with a referee while he was coaching at the Sioux. Houston fined him $300, and only because he liked Billy, it was that low. It was most fortunate for Ray that Houston didn't like him. Not many coaches in the EPHL had $300 hanging around in their pockets in those days. Now, Ed Houston is the salary King Solomon of the sport. Houston approaches the job with only one true conviction. He's a, a one to three shot to become the most unpopular bum in the world of hockey. Players will bleat that he's a tool of management. The owners will wail that he's trying to become the players John L. Lewis with the owner's money. Houston's arrival coincides with what the financial page people might call the biggest economic upheaval of all time in the world of hockey. At least two players are requesting a modest $1 million for five-year contracts. By the time the Bruins meet the demands of Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito, they might have to ask Johnny Busick and Ken Hodge, who got 51 and 43 goals respectively last year, whether they would settle for the right to sell beer and crab cakes at Boston Garden. You see, if the going rate for Warren Esposito is pegged at something like 200 grand a season, what's Bobby Hullworth to the Blackhawks, Dave Keon to the Maple Leafs, or Ken Dryden to the Montreal Canadiens, a kid with just six professional regular season games to his credit, though he does have a Stanley Cup and a Conn Smythe Trophy. What's he going to be worth to the Habs now? So a whole new tariff schedule will emerge when, and if, the Oren Esposito stipend skirmishes are settled. Even ordinary journeyman shinny players will be asking for loot that superstars couldn't even think of a few years ago. While it isn't likely that Houston will be asked to weigh in on the bullion for the big names, such as O.R. Espo and Davey Keon, there is every indication he's going to be very, very busy. The league is well stocked with players who know they are not as valuable as Bobby Orr, but they would be willing to settle for uh, maybe half as much. For his part, Houston has a good plan. He says that he intends to assess each claim on its own merits. Ed says one of my yardsticks will be a player's value at the box office. I'll try and determine his worth offensively and defensively. How much time did he spend on the ice? Did he take part in power plays? Sounds like Ed Houston wants to be a little analytical in his approach. Analytics. Hmm. Well, Ed knows, of course, that the players whose salary demands are referred to him will be represented by lawyers, business agents, advocates, and advisors. Ed says, I just hope the players get knowledgeable people to represent them. Will the system work? Ed says it's difficult to tell. He says, I fully expect to be the enemy of both sides 
And all I ask is respect for the job I'm doing. Ed Houston, the new King Solomon of salary disputes for the National Hockey League and the Players Association. Most hockey fans of of the era 50 years ago know that colored pucks were tried out in the World Hockey Association, which at this point hadn't even completely gotten off the ground, although there was a lot of talk going around. But a lot of fans don't know that the idea of colored hockey pucks was not a novel idea of the rival league, although they did sort of take credit for it. Bob Monahan of the Boston Globe wrote a story this week about colored hockey pucks, and we have that for you now. All hockey pucks are black, right? Wrong. Now you can get them in green, red, and blue, but there's a catch. They're not regulation pucks. They're for practice play only. Boston University freshman hockey coach Bob Corker has developed these uh, practice pucks, all regulation size, three inches by one, but they're different weights, and each is 100% vulcanized rubber. Crocker spent over a year with rubber experts and representatives of the Arthur D. Little Company working uh, to uh, perfect these practice pucks. The designer inventor explained, it was just a case of trial and error. We finally hit the perfect compound and now we're producing these colored pucks. A regulation hockey puck weighs six ounces. Crocker's green puck is 11 ounces, the red one's 15 and a half ounces, and the blue one weighs 19 ounces, and you can see where we're going here, why they would do this. Bob Crocker says that he got the idea a couple years ago while watching Mike Heinemann, an All-American defenseman at Boston University, shooting lead-weighted pucks. He said uh, Mike, who by the way now is playing professional hockey, was one of the finest college shooters ever. His shot was quick and strong. He did benefit from the weighted puck, but he thought an all-rubber puck, only heavier than usual, would actually react in a more true manner than the lead-weighted puck. So that's what got him started in making these colored pucks. Crocker is now president of Weighted Wonder Incorporated and he says these pucks can be used in practice from the peewee age right up to the professionals. Here's Bob's thinking on how on how the these pucks would be used. Uh, he gives this example. You have two defensemen pass two weighted pucks back and forth from point to point for five or ten minutes. Then you give them a regulation puck and they feel like they're handling a toy. An all rubber weighted puck will go where you pass it or shoot it. It will bounce just like a regulation puck. It will follow a truer course than one of the lead weighted jobs. These new pucks will sharpen a player's shooting, passing, and his overall puck control. And the extra weight will help a player build up his hands, arms, and most importantly for shooting, his wrists. Crocker is quick to point out that there are some caveats with these colored weighted pucks. They should not be used for street hockey, for slap shots, or any kind of a shot on goaltenders 
practice or otherwise. The real value of these pucks comes on the ice, says Crocker. True hockey is played on skates and on the ice, and that's the best way to practice the game too. Bob says it would be possible, however, to have shooting drills in a backyard provided you shooting from a slippery surface, say a, a piece of wax plywood that's highly varnished or something like that. Bob says he would only advocate a wrist shot at a target. No one should attempt a slap shot with any type of weighted puck. Crocker believes that a player should take about 100 shots a day with a weighted puck. After that, you feel as though you can thread a needle with a regulation puck. Varsity hockey coaches Barry Urbanski of Salem State, Bill Riley of Lowell Tech, Richie Green of Colby and West Point freshman coach Dick Toomey already have ordered pucks from Crocker and a youth hockey league in, of all places, Los Angeles, California, has put in an order for six dozen of the pucks. So, hockey fans, you don't think you're going to colorblind if you see green, red, and blue pucks at various rinks this fall and winter. They're just players working on their puck control, their passing, and, of course, their shots. So that's this week's show, everyone. Not quite as much news as we'd like to have, but uh, stay tuned for August. Uh, there are some days in August when I was working on uh, the Twitter feed for the month of August where some of the days actually had almost as, as much uh, hockey news as some days in the regular season. What did we learn this time around? Well, we got an update and background on the contract situations of the Bruins' two biggest stars, Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito. We learned a lot about the man who will arbitrate NHL salary disputes. Of course, that's Ed Houston. And we found out that hockey pucks just aren't black anymore. They're not being used, the colored pucks, they're not being used in games. But as we would learn very soon, that was just a matter of time. Here's some of the stuff we're working on for next week. Uh, one of Gordy Howe's sons is going to play uh, Junior A hockey in Ontario. We'll tell you which one and which team he's going to play for. We'll learn of firm plans to locate a World Hockey Association in a pretty decent-sized uh, U.S. Midwest city, complete with the new rink to be constructed. Do you know where this first confirmation, well, sort of confirmation, is going to be? We'll tell you next week. And we're going to have some more player signings to announce in what's looking right now to be a very light hockey news week once again. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. As I mentioned, Andy was here uh, for about a week uh, visiting from Winnipeg. Uh, this just a couple weeks ago and and he showed me what he does to put this together it's truly amazing he is a true whiz at this he's in the business of producing podcasts if you want to put something together uh, please get a hold of me I'll put you in contact with Andy and I'm sure he can set you up pretty well he's a true media professional the very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and outro music. If you ever get a chance to see them perform live, they put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces in the podcast and sound effects are all created by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. 
You can find us every week, this show on the Hockey Podcast Network. We're on Twitter every day at at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook. The banner is the 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. You can get the podcast through your favorite podcast app. Thanks again to everyone who tunes in all summer. I'm glad you stuck stuck with us through the dog days of summer so far. The 71-72 season is shaping up to be tremendously interesting with uh, the second season of the Buffalo Sabres and Vancouver Canucks and the advent of the World Hockey Association. There is going to be some very interesting news and I think you'll all enjoy how we report to you how the league gets itself off the ground over the coming season. We also wanted to mention that if you enjoy what we do here and on Twitter every day, we have a Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash hockey50years. And we would love for you to go there and subscribe. Subscribers get early access to each week's show and some very special content that we produce a couple times a month. That's patreon.com slash hockey50years to subscribe to the podcast. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice breaks.